I have sleep apnea and I used to struggle with CPAP. Until recently, I hadn't had a good night's sleep since 2005. Do you remember 2005? We used cell phones like actual phones and everyone wanted life hacks. Here's a life hack for anyone who struggles with CPAP. Get Inspire. It's a sleep apnea treatment that works inside your body to give you comfortable, restful sleep. Learn more at InspireSleep.com. Inspire is not for everyone. Talk to your doctor to see if it's right for you and review important safety information at InspireSleep.com. You're listening to the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. Radio's authority on the world of the paranormal and the science of parapsychology. Celebrating 25 years of broadcasting. Broadcasting around the world and to the great beyond. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exome Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, High Tech with Corey Kay, and every minute of the 24-7, 365 programming of the Exome Broadcast Network by calling 712-432-9459, courtesy of TalkStream Live. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 712-432-9459 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember, 712-432-9459 for the best of paranormal, new age, thought-provoking, sci-fi radio programming 24-7, 365. While science pursues fact, magic accesses the quantum level, bridging random facts to form truth. As long as science and magic remain separate and polarized, the truth cannot be known. I'm Wilda Wiecka. Join me on the Science of Magic radio program dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. During each episode, I'll be speaking with experienced and respected scientists and mystics. From astrologers to astronomers, from medical doctors to shaman, the scientific method to dowsing and intuition, we will weave together information from seemingly divergent practices to promote unity and enlightenment. Join me, Wilda Wiaka, and the Science of Magic right here on the Exxon Broadcast Network. For more information, visit www.thescienceofmagic.net. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. Here we are at the first broadcast of A Different Perspective, and I'm the host, Kevin Randall. Unfortunately, the introduction stole most of what I wanted to say first up about who I am and what I have done in the past, so there's not much more to say. The inaugural guest on the program is Jerry Clark, also known as Jerome Clark. He is responsible for some of the best of the UFO writing, and his UFO encyclopedia is almost a must-have for the serious researcher. In the interest of full disclosure, I have known Jerry Clark for quite a long time, and we uh, share the same publisher periodically. So it's not like we're adversaries in this arena. We're just colleagues who've known each other for a very long time. Uh, Good afternoon, Jerry. How are you? Oh, good afternoon, Kevin. I'm fine. It's a beautiful day here, so in Minnesota. So anyway, I'm looking forward to our conversation. 
Well, I've been looking forward to the conversation for a couple of weeks and trying to think of uh, some pertinent questions to ask you, knowing that you have this wide body of information about UFOs and that sort of thing. So let me let me ask you this first, because it's the m- mundane question probably would be asked by most people. What are UFOs? Well, nothing like starting with the simple questions. <laughs> You know, I, I've thought about this, of course, for a very long time, and I actually still think about it daily in one way or another. It's rolling through my head. And um, to start with, one problem, of course, is that there is very little science done in ufology. That scientists have gone out of their way not to investigate UFOs or even to consider them a legitimate question. So a real definitive answer probably depends on actual science being done and actual science being funded the way actual science is funded. And in the meantime, all we can do is make inferences from from testimony, from physical evidence, some other kinds of things. So, you know, the evidence, I think that there's a genuine anomaly is definitive. But the nature of that anomaly, of course, or those anomalies remains elusive. My own view is that there probably is more than one thing going on that is anomalous. And I don't mean the obvious mistaken sightings, the hoaxes, the jokes, that sort of thing. I mean, I'm talking about the core of anomalous experiences and phenomena at the heart of the UFO controversy. And I think that one useful way I find to think about it is that we separate the hard evidence cases from the high strangeness cases. The hard evidence cases are the radar visuals, the physical trace cases, things like that, The what we call close encounters of the second kind. And I think that the other kinds of things that get thrown into the UFO arena may actually be unrelated to the core phenomenon of, of hardcore evidence, multiple witness sightings, when you when you say when you say that, uh, what kind of other things are you referring to? I'm talking about the high strangeness stuff that more and more defines in the popular mind and even in the minds of many ufologists what the UFO phenomenon is. Things like abduction stories, men in black cases, monsters, all these kinds of extraordinary experiences that people report apparently sincerely and that don't seem to have, you know, conventionally psycho- psychological and other explanations. Well, you, you, you said something else that I found interesting, which was uh, scientists won't look at UFOs. Has it always been that way from the, from the very beginning? Has, has science sort of rejected the idea of whatever UFOs are and looking at them in a scientific fashion? Or is that sort of an evolution of the scientific thinking? Well, I think that when UFOs were new and novel, there was probably a greater degree of open-mindedness, although, as you know from your reading of newspaper reports in 1947, 1948, the early years, there was still a lot of skepticism. I think that scientific skepticism really solidified after Donald Menzel appeared on the scene. Menzel was a Harvard astronomer who was a man of great authority and also kind of an authoritarian disposition who made it hard for younger scientists who may have wanted to investigate reports to do so because he was in a position to make their professional lives difficult. But there have been, you know, Brad Sparks has estimated that in the history of the UFO controversy in America, there's probably been a total of six months of of science done on the UFO phenomenon. And periodically, you know, somebody will dig into it or some committee will be formed. And usually when those things happen, they come to the conclusion, yes, there's something here that we certainly should look at and it seems to be puzzling, but nothing follows from that, unfortunately. Just a pattern that crosses the whole history of the phenomenon. 
Well, when we come back, one of the things I'd like to explore, since you kind of brought it up here, is the scientific committees formed to investigate UFOs. Uh, what spring to mind immediately is the Robertson panel and the Condon committee, which ended the Air Force investigation of UFOs. So we'll take a look at that when we get back uh, in just a few minutes. Afterlife expert Roberta Grimes was the first one to say that dying can be fun. Now her best-selling book, The Fun of Dying, is available in stores worldwide. So if you wonder whether death ends life, how it feels to die, or what heaven might be like, The Fun of Dying was written for you. And if you have always been afraid of death, or if you worry that your life is no meaning, let The Fun of Dying ease your fears and bring new meaning to your life. Nothing said in The Fun of Dying is based on the teachings of any religion. Instead, Roberta draws on evidence to explain how death happens, how it feels, and what comes next. A lot of the best death-related evidence was produced in the first half of the 20th century. When it is put together with recent discoveries, it tells a consistent and amazing story. Roberta Grimes blogs and answers questions at robertagrimes.com. Her wonderful book, The Fun of Dying, is available on Amazon and at stores worldwide wherever books are sold. You're listening to the X-Zone Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. This is Kevin Randall. For nearly 30 years, I have been investigating the case of the Roswell UFO. I have interviewed hundreds of people and stood on the crash site. Now in Roswell in the 21st century, I have reviewed dozens of hours of audio and videotaped interviews, examined hundreds of files that relate to the crash, and have returned to Roswell in an attempt to put all that information into the proper perspective. For the first time in Roswell in the 21st century, I have made a dispassionate reevaluation of all that material and provide a new look at what happened. This is a book that clears away all the clutter that has hidden the truth for so long, strips away the various lies that surround the case, exposes the Air Force attempts at cover-up, and found a core of solid information that tells us all where the case stands today. Roswell in the 21st Century will be available in just a few weeks. For more information, please visit my website at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pound. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. star began to demonstrate a metaphysical connection to the spirit world as a little girl. Her family noticed the connection, but it was a great-grandmother who told the family that Linnea was indeed gifted. The great-grandmother, who was also gifted, felt that Linnea had indeed inherited these attributes. It has been noticed that oftentimes, such things are passed down through the generations. Linnea was also born with a call, a thin white membrane across a newborn's face. Legend has it that if the baby is born with this call, the child will have second sight, or what we call psychic abilities. Linnea Starr does past, present, and future, and has the gift of prophecy. 
It is written within scriptures that if you are able to give factual information and prophecies indeed come true, the gift indeed comes from the divine realm. Linnea Starr does large interactive groups as well as private gatherings. For more information on Linnea Starr or to contact Linnea for a one-on-one consultation, visit her website at www.linneastar.com. That's www.l-i-n-n-e-a-s-t-a-r.com. managed to make it back with uh, my guest Jerry Clark, who writes under the name Jerome Clark and has done a number of wonderful books, such as the UFO Encyclopedia, which is a two-volume set of crammed full of information. And there's some uh, paperback versions of it that has been published from uh, Visible Inc. as well, so you can get a condensed version for a lot less money than the original UFO Encyclopedia would have cost you. Uh, Jerry, before we went away, you had mentioned some of the scientific studies, and the two that spring to my mind are the Robertson panel from 1953 and the Condon Committee from 1969. So let's tackle the Robertson panel first. This was set up by the CIA in early 1953 as a response to the Washington National sightings, and what did they do? How, how did they come to their conclusions? Was it a legitimate scientific investigation, or was it something else? Well, it was a meeting of, as I would call, about a dozen CIA-connected scientists who did not take the phenomenon seriously, were seriously skeptical about it, didn't know a lot about it except that UFOs don't exist. And so the Air Force brought some of its evidence to these to the panel and the panel just basically laughed it off the whole idea really was in response to an idea that had been developed that it wasn't ufo's that were this threat to national security it was hysteria about ufo's which they feared the soviet union could use in a kind of psi war capacity to frighten americans or that there might be a genuine case of Soviet bombers flying toward American soil and the sightings being dismissed as just more flying saucer sightings. And so the whole idea was just to discourage public interest. They even went so far as to say that that the, the, the FBI ought to look in on civilian UFO groups because they were spreading disinformation that would be advantageous advantageous to America's adversaries. And so it wasn't really a scientific panel at all, but after that, the Air Force ended its brief period of open-minded investigation of reports and just went on to debunk reports from that time on until 1969 when Project Blue Book closed. Are you suggesting that the uh, Robertson panel's idea was to get the FBI to sort of intimidate these civilian UFO groups? Well, this was suggested in the, in, the, in the Robertson report, as I recall. I don't know that it was ever acted on, although I have heard people claim that the local police sometimes looked in on gatherings of local saucer groups, but I don't know how serious that was. And I don't know that there's any evidence that the FBI actually did begin to investigate UFO groups. Wasn't there wasn't there an idea embedded in the Robertson panel final report to um, sort of debunk flying saucers to suggest solutions uh, to kind of educate the public? Yes, to make this, the whole subject just toxic, and to contribute to ridicule and dismissal, and just make this thing go away. So their idea was that uh, if they presented. Uh, information of cases that had been solved, for example, or that somebody wasn't exactly the uh, sharpest knife in the drawer that that, that might inhibit UFO reporting? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was just uh, basically added to the aura of ridicule that already surrounded the subject and gave it 
a kind of official imprint. And you suggest that after the Robinson panel report was issued, the Air Force investigation took a turn for the for the worst. Yeah, it was you know it, it was never a high priority, but it was downgraded even further, as as you know, and uh, just run by low-ranking officers who were not particularly competent, weren't interested in the subject, and considered the appointment, you know, a career dead end. There was very little serious investigation that went on after 1953. But isn't that sort of of, um, the way that the Air Force investigation uh, was continuously? It started out as a high-interest thing, and then it kind of fell into this uh, disgrace after the uh, uh, chief of staff of the Air Force decided there was uh, – General Vandenberg decided there was nothing to it, and then it was revitalized, and now we're back to the idea it's kind of um, in disgrace again. Yeah, as you well know, of course, the whole the first Air Force project was organized in January 1948 under the name Project Sign, and Sign personnel came to the conclusion that there might very well be interplanetary visitors and that they were responsible for the most puzzling UFO sightings, but that conclusion was rejected by the fall of 1948. Sign was reorganized as Project Grudge, and the Project Grudge operated on the assumption that absolutely nothing was going on and you didn't have to even really investigate reports sit at your desk and make up explanations for people's reports. So you're suggesting that originally Project Sign was a legitimate investigation where they were really searching for answers, but once the idea that they might be extraterrestrial or interplanetary ships, as they said at that time, uh, was rejected, then uh, it it fell into a, a period of, well, we don't really care about these sorts of things. You know, this is all taking place, of course, in the context of the early years of the Cold War. And I think that the American government and military thought that it had enough on its hands trying to deal with the Soviet Union and then communist China, and that it did not need the distraction of of even allowing for the possibility that there were extraterrestrial visitors about whom nothing could be done in our atmosphere. I think that there was just a calculation. And so, uh, I think... so there was a period where they were serious about the investigation. Then there was a period when they weren't quite so serious. And then we reached the summer of 1952. Right. Then you have all these sightings over Washington, D.C. that were very difficult to hide from anybody. And those sightings remain unexplained. And it was a period of just great urgency where you couldn't bury this thing. So you had to deal with it really in an upfront way and in a way that did not leave any ambiguity. Did not say, yes, most sightings are explainable, but some aren't. You didn't even want to leave that little hole. And um, so there was just essentially make the subject toxic. Well, it also resulted in what I think of as the greatest headline I've ever seen in a newspaper, and this is a legitimate headline from the Cedar Rapids Gazette for July in July of 1952, which was banner headline across the front page: "Saucers swarm over Capitol." I'm thinking this is a headline right out of a science fiction movie if I've ever seen one. Right. So obviously, it was a great deal of interest in the uh, sightings from Washington of 1952, the Washington Nationals, as they're called. So then we get to the Robertson panel; they decide. Or maybe they don't decide. Maybe the directed to find that there's nothing to UFOs, and again we run into this idea that there's nothing to it. So how do we move from that where there's nothing to it yet the Air Force is continuing to investigate to the Condon Committee? This is the University of Colorado study that was funded by the Air Force in 1967. How do we move from the idea that the Robertson panel has explained this whole thing to the idea we're going to now make another scientific investigation? Well, the basic fact of the situation is that UFOs did not go away. No matter what, you know, elites did to make sightings toxic and um, subject to ridicule and and explanation, conventional explanation, sightings continued. And it really backfired on the Air Force because 
people began to suspect that because the there was this great disjunction between report and explanation that people thought the Air Force can't really believe its own explanation. So well, that kind of that kind of that kind of strikes me as as uh, a point. You know, there were there were a number of sightings in that period from the end of the Robertson panel in 1953 to the Condon Committee in 1967. Um, what's I, I, the, the the Level sightings? Kind of uh, evoke that that question in my mind. Did, 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 was it the same for you? Does Level Land sort of set the tone for some of the the best of the UFO sightings? Yes, this, these are you know cases from early November 1957, West Texas, where a number of witnesses of impeccable integrity describe seeing huge objects landing and or hovering nearby, and then the Air Force conducts a, a perfunctory investigation which claims that they were seeing ball lightning. The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. First of all, what they were seeing was not ball lightning because ball lightning's usually no bigger than a basketball. And that's a particularly large sample of ball lightning, and the weather conditions were not conducive to the creation of ball lightning. It was a ridiculous explanation. And um, well, you say you say the the, the the craft was landed. Was there any effects? Was there landing traces? Well, there, was there, there something? Were, there, there were cars that were stopped. You know, vehicle interference, things like that. There were cases of people claimed that they were burned by close proximity to these objects. And these were, you know, really puzzling sightings. Now, another thing that happened was that back in those days, we tend to forget that the press was a lot less skeptical about official pronouncements. And that when the Air Force came out with explanations, which might have struck the average newspaper reader as ridiculous, those sightings were treated respectfully as if the definitive word. In fact, usually the newspapers sightings were just almost read like Air Force press handouts. But I think that the, the average person who might himself have seen a UFO or who knew someone that he know, knew and trusted had seen a UFO, this made less and less sense. And then there were these periodic waves like, you know, the wave in the southwest in the spring of 1964 and the, the wave in... Um, in Michigan and, and elsewhere in 1966. So there were these continuing sightings, and every time there was a wave, some newspaper editorialists and some few but brave, courageous scientists would say, we really need to look into this. These Air Force explanations don't make sense. These sightings well, when you, say, when you say wave, when you say wave, what exactly do you mean? Well, an increase in sightings, a dramatic increase in sightings. You know, usually focused on one area, but quickly expanding elsewhere. So, for example, in, this, in March 1966, you get the, the sighting of a craft-like object seen by a number of people and have it explained as swamp gas, which became a national joke. And then sightings spread all over the country. And so by the time the wave has run its course, you've, you've, you know, you've had thousands of reports and uh, many of them really interesting, and nothing so, gets done. So but eventually, it was out of it was out of this this 1966 wave, which overwhelmed the Air Force, and and there was so much ridicule of the swamp gas explanation that the Air Force comes to the conclusion that it has to get UFOs out of its hands; that it just can't deal with the public relations disaster that UFO reports have become. They just want out of the UFO business. So, so they make this wink-wink contract with the University of Colorado in order to get the scientific, uh, you know, scientific validation of the Air Force's skeptical view of UFOs, and that's what happens after Well, let's, let's take a look at, at that, which is, becomes the Condon Committee when, when we return. Uh, my name's Kevin Randall. I have just published the book, uh, Roswell in the 21st Century, available in the, the normal 
areas you'd expect it to be available. And take a look at my blog, kevinrandall.blogspot.com, uh, which will provide additional information on a lot of different topics of interest to us here. Wouldn't you love to know the secret to everything? Well then, meet Dr. Kimberly McGeorge and her cutting-edge breakthrough knowledge that combines science with possibility. Dr. Kimberly brings real-life answers and healing to those open to alternative solutions. She teaches solution-based programs and classes that will change all areas of your life forever. Specializing in conscious creation, intuitive readings, and energy medicine, you can rapidly shift health, relationships, business, and money and abundance challenges quickly. Receive her best-selling book, Secret to Everything, at no cost by going to secrettoeverything.com forward slash X zone. That's right. Transformation can start now. Just go to secrettoeverything.com forward slash X zone and receive Dr. Kimberly's book for free. You're listening to the X-Zone Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. Gibbs A. Williams, Ph.D., is a practicing psychoanalyst, supervisor, researcher, and author in New York City. Much of his life has been dedicated to understanding nature and the uses of meaningful coincidences or synchronicities. His radical and original non-Jungian, non-mystical, non-magical theory of synchronicities illuminates much of the fog surrounding this challenging and perplexing topic. His ideas and manners are fresh, presented in a style that is both entertaining and highly informative. He is also an expert on crisis intervention specially focused on violence reduction for the police and citizens, mastering anxiety, frustration, and stress without the use of medication, and effectively preventing and treating heroin addiction. Dr. Williams can be contacted at his email address at gwwilliamsny11 at aol.com or visit his website at www.drgibbswilliams.com. Join High Tech with Corey K. Weekly here on the Exxon Broadcast Network. From the world of computers to the ever-popular computerized gadgetry that are becoming part of our everyday life and living and society. From kids and their gaming devices, teens and their smartphones, to the applications of personal and business computers. From hardware to software, from standalone units to network computers. Join high-tech guru Corey K. weekly right here on the Exxon Broadcast Network as he takes on the topics that will be of use and great value to the international audience of the Exxon Broadcast Network. High-tech with Corey K. weekly. Weekends at 9 p.m. Eastern, only on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. The scientist and the mystic have been on an age-old, relentless search with one thing in common. They seek truth. Their paths converge in the 40,000-year-old practice of shamanism, an ancient science delving to the quantum level of life, facilitating healing, manifestation, and evolution. I'm Gwilda Wiecka, the founder and director of Path Home Shamanic Arts School, a unique Colorado State certified occupational school, training shamanic practitioners and teachers. We also provide classes for empowering personal lives through shamanism. Our certification classes are in week-long segments, enabling international participation, and online classes and long-distance shamanic healing sessions are available. Come discover the science of magic in the limitless world of shamanism. www.findyourpathhome.com Coming soon to the Exxon Broadcast Network is a different perspective with me, Kevin Randall, as your host. We'll be taking a close look at what is happening in the world of UFOs today with side trips into the paranormal. Guests will range from those who are household names to those who have a different perspective on a variety of topics. No topic will be taboo, but there will be tough questions asked as we all search for the truth about UFOs, the paranormal, and those things that excite us. 
Sometimes we'll agree with a guest and sometimes we won't, but we'll try to keep the program topical. For those of you who like to read, be sure to visit www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and remember to listen to the other fine programs on the X-Zone Broadcast Network at www.xzbn.net. You're listening to the X-Zone Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. What Happened in Benghazi is revealed by Nicholas Genix, author of Obama, Islam, and Benghazi. He informs the American people that President Obama deceived them by advocating a strong foreign policy prior to the 2012 presidential election, and Hillary Clinton supported this deception. As the title infers, there is a connection between Obama, Islam, and Benghazi. Ample evidence informs Americans that Obama's early indoctrination in the Quran developed an infinity for Islam, why the Quran is the source of discontent in many countries, and why the Obama foreign policy deception led to poor military action and caused the loss of American lives in Benghazi. Genix provides 36 questions for the Select Committee on Benghazi to validate if Americans are justified to mistrust President Obama and Hillary Clinton. An overview of Obama, Islam, and Benghazi is presented on the website www.futureofgodamen.com. That's www.futureofgodamen.com. Afterlife expert Roberta Grimes was the first one to say that dying can be fun. Now her best-selling book, The Fun of Dying, is available in stores worldwide. So if you wonder whether death ends life, how it feels to die, or what heaven might be like, The Fun of Dying was written for you. And if you have always been afraid of death, or if you worry that your life has no meaning, let The Fun of Dying ease your fears and bring new meaning to your life. Nothing said in The Fun of Dying is based on the teachings of any religion. Instead, Roberta draws on evidence to explain how death happens, how it feels, and what comes next. A lot of the best death-related evidence was produced in the first half of the 20th century. When it is put together with recent discoveries, it tells a consistent and amazing story. Roberta Grimes blogs and answers questions at robertagrimes.com. Her wonderful book, The Fun of Dying, is available on Amazon and at stores worldwide wherever books are sold. talking about uh, the Air Force's attempts to stop their UFO investigations or the Air Force investigations and how they were handled in the late 50s, early 1960s. And we had reached the point where the Air Force was now finding itself um, battered by the press and the public with their explanations for UFO sightings. It just didn't make a lot of sense. Uh, Swamp gas for the Michigan sightings and some of the other nonsensical things that they had said at the same time. So this sort of brought us to the Condon Committee, the University of Colorado study commissioned by the Air Force in 1967, led by Dr. Edward U. Condon, who was a uh, well-respected scientist at the time. So uh, was this an actual attempt by the Air Force to learn something about UFOs or was there an underlying reason for this uh, idea? Well, it's been pretty well established through the recovery of the documents from the original Air Force contacts with the University of Colorado and, and Dr. Condon that they that the Condon committee, that Condon and his highest-ranking associate, Robert Lowell, knew what this was about that the idea was to uh, make it look to the public as if this was an actual objective scientific inquiry while letting the scientific community know that these guys had no expectation of proving the existence of UFOs. What happened, so some of the 
actual field investigators didn't get the memo, literally. And they took this quite seriously. And they thought that their job actually was to investigate UFOs from a scientific perspective. And eventually they became disillusioned. The committee almost broke up at one point after a couple of its people got fired because they figured out that the whole thing was just a setup. When the Condon Committee report was published, I believe in January 1969, it was this big, fat report with a lot of just reprinted documents. I mean, it's almost unreadable if you sit and read it from cover to cover. But if you do, you find that about a third of the sightings are unexplained. But Condon writes this introduction, which everybody reads, reporters, people are casually interested. That's really all they want to read of it. And Condon says that, we, we didn't find anything, and we really doubt that any further scientific investigation is warranted because there doesn't seem to be anything here. And then Condon just sees pretending to be, uh, you know, uh, objective about the question, and he openly ridiculed UFOs and, and UFO sighters in public until his death and actually tried to make things difficult for scientists, young scientists, including the young Carl Sagan, who did want to investigate UFO reports. Well, so, you said that uh, there was some kind of collusion between the Air Force and the, the Condon Committee, uh, that there was documentation proving this, in essence. Uh, what, what would be that documentation? Well, it um, reports the contracts and the, the conversations, early conversations, where they had this conversation where nobody says outright, Look, this is just a setup job. But the, between the lines, are saying yes, we understand each other. The university, what was in it for the University of Colorado, was not association with UFOs, which it didn't want, but was Air Force money infused into the university. So everybody who was involved at the decision-making level, whether on the Air Force or the university bureaucracy, or you know um, the university treasury had an interest, but that interest wasn't in a scientific investigation of UFOs. That was just a sop for for the rubes out there. Well, uh, what, what about this uh, letter, the Hippler letter, written by Lieutenant Colonel Robert Hippler of the Air Force? Yes, I believe that's one of the documents. You'll have to excuse my my uncertain memory about this, but yes, I believe that's one of the things I'm talking about. Well, Hippler said, in essence, that, that if they didn't find there was nothing to this, that the Air Force would be stuck with the investigation for another 20 years and would cost several million dollars. And the Condon Committee response seemed to be, yeah, we get that. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was I say, it was just a wink-wink kind of arrangement. And Condon did say in Corning, New York, I think it was like 18 months before the, uh, the end of the investigation, he says, uh, I'm ready to tell the Air Force there's really nothing to this right now. But I'm not supposed to learn this for another 18 months. So, yes, I mean, Condon he, got quite angry when these things actually began to circulate. He apparently thought that he was saying these things to discreet, semi-private audiences who weren't going to tell newspaper reporters that he said this. And as more and more stories like this came to the attention of the Condon Committee staff, there was more and more unhappiness on that level. And the whole thing just turned into a disaster. And, in fact, there was even a book written before the Condon Committee even dissolved whose subtitle was Where the Condon Committee Went Wrong, written by one of the staff psychologists, David Saunders. Well, also one of the things that interested me about the report, and as you say, most people didn't bother to read the whole thing, was they, they explained a lot of sightings. And one of them they explained as a natural phenomenon so rare it had never been seen before or since. Absolutely. That, and, that's just hilarious. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, well, isn't there some type of scientific value in looking at a phenomenon, a natural, even if it's a natural phenomenon, not, not indicative of, of alien visitation, but a natural phenomenon that is that rare that may provide some information about what's going around, on, on the Earth? So I would think that in itself would be a reason to continue the uh, 
investigation, even if it's not the Air Force conducting it, but an air, but a civilian organization, which kind of leads to the idea, wasn't NASA approached to, to take over UFO investigations at some point? Yes, this was in the late 1970s, and NASA really didn't want to handle it either, and, and NASA knew what a public relations disaster this had been, and NASA found ways to to pretend that it was considering the question. I believe this was in the late 1970s. So and, they... Uh, and then refused to do so. Now, I want to get back to what that quote you were making about the, the okay. phenomenon that happened only once. Taken literally, those words describe some kind of extraordinary anomaly. But those words aren't to be taken literally. They're just dismissive. They're just wind. And you're not to take them seriously. All you need to know is that this wasn't a spaceship. And it means nothing. It just means we couldn't explain this, but it couldn't have been a spaceship. And it couldn't be a spaceship because we all know there is no such thing as alien visitation. Right. I mean, it's just like a, like a cat chasing its own tail. Well, there was another oh. interest, interesting thing, and, and we mentioned it just a little while ago, which was the Leveland sightings. Here's a group of sightings in which the uh, uh, UFO, the UFOs, whatever, interacted with the environment. They stalled car engines, caused them to stop working, caused lights to dim, caused radios to fill with static. People were reporting this to the Leveland sheriff uh, repeatedly without the instantaneous way we have today of things going up on Instagram or Facebook or uh, Twitter immediately about this. These people, without any conscious knowledge of the others, were going into the Leveland Sheriff or the Leveland Police, describing similar events to the point where the sheriff went out and looked for the thing and, and saw it as well. But what was interesting is if you go back to the Condon Committee report and look up Leveland, there's a single reference to it, and this was you know, 10 years after the Leveland event, so everything would have been easily uh, found. The people would have still been alive that could have talked about this. Um, but there's a single reference to it, and it's a, a, a woman who claimed her car had been stalled by a UFO, and the Condon Committee went out and did a magnetic mapping of the hood to see if it was significantly different from other cars manufactured by the same um, manufacturing uh, plant at about the same time, and there was no variation in this ma magnetic mapping, and so they decided there was no great magnetic field um, used to suppress the car engine. Therefore, these things didn't happen. Therefore, level land did not need to be investigated. The Air Force had this uh, Project Blue Book had this wonderful category called psychological, and psychological was basically a dumping place for weird cases. <laughs> landings, close encounters of the third kind, where they, since Blue Book knew that you couldn't get close to UFOs, they didn't have occupants. But if you insisted that you had seen the UFO land and seen humanoids standing outside it, they just dumped your case into the psychological category. But they didn't do that with Lonnie Zamora, the New Mexico police officer who saw the landed thing in uh, 1964 with the two occupants on the outside, they labeled that case unidentified. Yes, they didn't really have a choice there. I think it was politically impossible for the Blue Book to pull that stunt on a, on a reputable law enforcement agent who was, uh, you know, backed up by his, by his employer and by the citizens of Socorro, New Mexico. I think that the Air Force got caught on that. It, it did, there were all kinds of other sightings, interesting sightings that were happening at that, around that area at the same time, but the Air Force pulled its usual stunts of hoaxes and, you know, this or that, rather than confront that something extraordinary may have happened over that period in late April 1964. Well, to be but fair, I think that with, to be with, fair, aren't there hoaxes? The Air Force, as I recall, looking at the the uh, the Blue Book statistics was that their hoaxes comprised something like 1% of the cases that it's gotten. I think most of those involve photographs, which most UFO hoaxes are, are of photographs. Now, there are other kinds of hoaxes, but hoaxing is not the major problem in with the UFO data. It's a problem, but a fairly small one. 
So there are hoaxes, but they're not really that many of them. And, and as I've always said, about 99% of the photographs taken were taken by teenage boys, and 99% yes. of those are faked. Right. <laughs> yes. Well, when we come back, um, I actually am a little bit early here. So uh, we were talking about the Socorro case. And that's uh, Lonnie Zamora seeing the object on the ground and the and the occupants. Wasn't there uh, other other things as well? Wasn't there a big investigation about that case? Well, this was actually a fairly well investigated case. The Air Force sent a guy out there, um, Sergeant David Moody, who was not the most competent blue book guy, and that's saying something. But there were also civilian investigations by the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena by the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization and, uh, you know, by assorted civilians who bopped in here and there. And uh, so we do have a fairly good idea of what happened, of what Lonnie Zamora, who was the chief witness, described. And, um, you know, it's still a puzzling case, and, and there are periodic attempts not very convincing to claim that he saw some kind of a secret test vehicle. Well, I think when we up the story, when we come back, I think we ought to take a look at that a little bit more in depth about the idea that it might have been of some kind of a test vehicle. So uh, we will do that. And uh, just a quick reminder: my name is Kevin Randall. I have just recently published the Roswell in the 21st Century, which should tell you everything you want to know about Roswell, at least in the 21st century. And for information about this, and in fact, there's some stuff going on in my blog right now about Lonnie Zamora, take a look at kevinrandall.blogspot.com, and uh, you'll be able to follow that discussion in greater depth. Little children aren't the only ones afraid of the dark. Millions of soldiers return from war zones with PTSD, anger, frustration, fear, and loneliness, much of which surfaces during the darkness of the night. You have the chance to change the lives of these American heroes. Songs and Stories for Soldiers.us provides free MP3 players for these men and women. With a list of 3 million songs in 16 different styles, 100,000 audiobooks, and 30,000 old-time radio programs, every veteran can find something to soothe and comfort them at no cost. All our players contain an 8-hour audio program designed to help veterans fall asleep. With 1,500 plus vets now participating, it's our goal to deliver 10,000 audio players this year. Go to our website at songsandstoriesforsoldiers.us. Help us help a veteran make it through the night. I am Dr. Carl O'Helvey, founder, president of a new cancer foundation focusing on evidence-based physical, mental, and spiritual interventions, including natural cancer cures, prayer, meditation, affirmations, nutrition, and other related holistic cancer prevention and cure modalities. These are used in cancer education, research, and financing care. I ask for your help to continue this important work by donating at www.holisticcancerfoundation.com. If you enjoy reading a good mystery with a touch of the paranormal, then you'll love From Out of the Woodwork by William S. Peckham. Sean Kennedy, a Toronto contractor, buys derelict houses, guts them, and turns them into multifamily dwellings. When Sean buys 29 Livery Lane, a century house in ruins, and starts the renovation, the house fights back. He is visited by ghosts of owners past. His visions are triggered by touching an oak mantle, reading a faded letter, opening an old locket, or opening a brand new casket in the basement. These visions will take you on a trip across southern Ontario from Niagara Falls to Toronto to Kingston. 
from Out of the Woodwork is now available in paperback and on your favorite electronic reader. To order your copy of From Out of the Woodwork, go to www.williamspeckham.com. That's www.williamspeckham.com. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exome Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, High Tech with Corey Kay, and every minute of the 24-7, 365 programming of the Exome Broadcast Network by calling 712-432-9459, courtesy of TalkStream Live. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 712-432-9459 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember, 712-432-9459 for the best of paranormal, new age, thought-provoking, sci-fi radio programming 24-7-365. My name's Kevin Randall. This is A Different Perspective, which is also the name of my blog, which you can find at kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And I have just published the Roswell, Roswell in the 21st Century, which you can find on the various media outlets. My guest right now is Jerry Clark. We're in our final segment. Jerry Clark, writing under the name Jerome Clark, is responsible for some of the better of the UFO books. Books about uh, various anomalies, as he likes to say it, that are available as well in the various places you'd buy your books. Jerry, when we went away, we were talking briefly, or maybe not so briefly, on the Zamora case. And this is a case where the police officer saw a landed craft near Socorro, New Mexico. Two creatures, beings outside the craft got back into it. It blasted off. And you were saying as we left that... um, some of the explanations being offered were experiments from White Sands Missile Range, which is not all that far from Socorro, New Mexico, or some kind of experimental craft either run by the Air Force or maybe uh, one of the universities around that area. So where does the case stand today? What do people think about it today after we've had 50 years to to investigate it? I think that it stands. You know, it's just one of the really good cases that have stood the, if you will pardon the cliche, the test of time. I actually got to meet Zamora and some of his police associates in the middle 1990s. And uh, Zamora was an extremely sensible man with a great sense of humor. And um, I talked with some of his associates whose names appear in the literature that I could, if I saw their names, I'd remember them. And they (laughs) still backed him up. You know, and there were all there were these other sightings that were going on, other C two kinds of cases. Well, that, let's, uh, let's, the let's, Air let's... Force forbade Alan Hynek, who was the chief scientific consultant of Blue Book, from investigating. Well, I wanted to uh, explore one other thing about this, and this is Philip Class investigated the case and determined that it was a hoax originated by the mayor of Socorro with Lonnie Zamora as his compadre in uh, designing some kind of UFO uh, mecca. Yeah. Uh, what what became of that theory? Nothing. I mean, it was just, you know, we, we all knew Phil Class, and he was a guy who was a very determined, even fanatical debunker, and his explanations just don't stand up. I think that he was the kind of of a debunking equivalent of a true-believing ufologist who every sighting of Venus is of a spacecraft, and all, and all UFOs are UFOs. Just class all UFOs are IFOs, and uh, that just does not seem to be the case from a lot of evidence, from a lot of different points of view. People have looked at the at the UFO evidence with anything like a reasonably open mind or even not so much an open mind have concluded that there is a core of unexplained reports 
and they're not unexplained just because we lack data. Some of these cases are really data-rich, but there's no evidence for a class's explanation. It's just, it was like a literary fantasy of his. Well, I know that the um, Defensor Chieftain, and I mentioned that only to prove that I uh, paid attention, which is the newspaper in Socorro, the daily newspaper in Socorro, a number of years ago, ran a story, maybe it was the 50th anniversary of of deciding, ran a story about this idea that it was a, uh, the the mayor of the town owned the land where the thing landed and they were trying to set up some kind of a tourist attraction. And it turned out that even though Class had said this and it was reported widely by a lot of other people in their books about the Socorro sighting or their, their entries about the Socorro sighting, it turned out the mayor didn't own the land. And the idea of the tourist attraction didn't, uh, come up until a year after the sighting, and it was kind of proposed almost by a paper in, New, uh, in El Paso, Texas, saying, well, maybe they thought of creating a tourist attraction, and from that point on, the idea kind of set in. So I, I was always... Ex- yes, go ahead. I'm sorry. I had the experience one time of um, showing a class's explanation to a very well-known UFO witness who was a clergyman, and he had never heard of Phil Glass. He never heard of class's explanation for his sighting, which was a close encounter of the third kind that he'd had in the company of several dozen other people. And class had invented this explanation that that he had made up this story because there was some kind of contest between him and his colleagues about who could report more UFOs. And that this sighting was a hoax that had come out of this alleged UFO sighting context. Now, if you knew this guy, who has since died, but he was a very sober, very smart guy, the idea that he would participate in something this silly is just absurd. Anyway, the guy read classes stuff, and the more he read, I was watching his expression, his eyes just began to open wider and wider, and then he finally started laughing. He said, well, who is this guy? Well, at least he had, had the... Uh... He didn't have the misfortune of meeting Phil Class, and what I really should point out, in fair, fairness to Phil Class, is uh, if you're not talking to him about UFOs or discussing, debating the reality of UFOs with him, he turned out to be a very cordial fellow and kind of kind of charming. Uh, while I was in Washington D.C. Uh, in a uh, taking a class at the DIA, uh, I had a chance to go visit with class at his home and we actually went sailing on the Potomac and he, he never remembered that he didn't remember we'd done that, but we were, he was having trouble getting back to the, the, um, not the Harbor, but the, uh, the boat yard, wherever the, the, the landing. And I said, well, why don't you use the, the, uh, engine? And he was just abhorred at that idea or appalled at that idea because he was a sailor and sailors just don't use the, the engines, uh, because it would cause trouble. So, uh, he was very charming when you weren't talking about UFOs, but when you were talking about UFOs, he would just go completely nuts about the topic and, 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 and as you say, invent explanations, leave out evidence uh, because it didn't fit with his explanation. And people thought because he was wrapped in the mantle, I guess, of Air, Aviation Week and Space Technology that, that there was some credibility to his, to his explanations. And Socorro simply doesn't work from what he was saying. It, it, the guy, uh, the mayor did not own the land and the reporter from the newspaper had gone back and checked the records to see who owned the land in 1964 and, and it was not there. I think that it's extremely essential that you not get emotionally investigate, invested in this question, either from a pro or an anti standpoint. It isn't worth getting emotionally invested because it will cloud your thinking. You know, if you are just intensely in love with the idea of alien UFOs or you're intensely disgusted and repelled by the concept, you should probably just let it be because you're not really going to contribute something that's useful to people who are not emotionally invested. And often that that also sort of hurts your own credibility because people look at your enthusiasm for one end of the spectrum or or another and and wonder just uh, how 
unbiased, how neutral your information might be because you're trying to prove a point. And I've said repeatedly that we really don't want to engage in a debate about the reality of alien visitations. What we want to do is invest, investigate them to see if there is sufficient evidence to come to the, that conclusion that alien visitation is part of the UFO phenomenon. I, I say part uh, in keeping with your idea that there are m multiple answers for this, uh, not all of them lead to the extraterrestrial. I think that the the one argument for the extraterrestrial hypothesis, which has to apply only to the small subset of hard evidence cases, and I'm not pro or anti ETH. I just think it's a reasonable possibility. But one of the key predictions of the extraterrestrial hypothesis is that planets are plentiful in the universe, and there are all kinds of possibilities, all kinds of planets, many, many, many of them potentially life-bearing. You have to have that before you can even consider an extraterrestrial hypothesis, and that part of the hypothesis has been richly validated over the last 20 years. We're discovering extrasolar planets all the time, some of them Earth-like. Well, we're getting, we're, we're getting to the point where we can, we can determine this, we can see the smaller planets and they're in the Goldilocks zone, in the inhabitable zone. So there's, exactly. there's all sorts of that going on today. And I mean, when you were going to school, there were nine planets in the solar system. Now and there's there aren't eight. even that many now. <laughs> well, but there may be because there's one way out in, in um, yes, the Kuiper right. belt that, that is the size of Mars possibly. Yeah. But there, there, you know, we may be living in a life-rich universe, and if we are, then the extraterrestrial hypothesis is certainly arguable from the best and most compelling UFO reports. But we still do not have the evidence we need to prove that proposition. We have some we don't very compelling know, evidence. We, we don't know that. And I, I'm not referring to Roswell or anything like that. I'm just saying that the whole idea of what constitutes evidence was actually an interesting question raised by former Blue Book head Ed Ruppelt in his 1956 memoir of his UFO years. He says, what constitutes proof? Well, the idea of proof in, in all kinds of scholarly inquiry, not just science, but history, other areas of, of human curiosity and inquiry, changes over time. And it may be that future historians and scientists will decide that the extraterrestrial hypothesis was validated as early as 1952. Well, there we go. I think that's a wonderful point for us to end on because you've now given hope to the people who believe there might be alien visitation. I want to thank you for coming on the very first program and remind people to take a look for Jerome Clark and the, their search engines for uh, your books to where they are. I'm Kevin Randall. My latest book is Roswell in the 21st Century, and you can get An more information book, about Kevin. this. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And uh, you can get more information at kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Thank you all, and have a good day. <laughs> <laughs>